this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, Ben here. This is a Small Voice Conversations with Photographers, and this is the very last episode of 2022. Christmas is upon us already, and so, as is now traditional, I'm going to bring you my review of the year, which almost didn't happen. I'll hang on, I'll explain in a second. Before that, this podcast is sponsored by Charcoal Editions, which is the newest project of the Charcoal Book Club, a curated online gallery selling open edition silver gelatin prints. That means a unique opportunity for photography lovers like me and you to acquire beautiful silver gelatin prints that ordinarily would only be financially accessible to collectors and institutions. Additioning photographic prints is an invention of galleries and dealers designed to increase scarcity and drive up prices. Charcoal Editions is rejecting that model. The purchase price of their prints reflects an equitable division between artist, printer and gallery. You're not paying for a signature or artificial scarcity, but for light itself captured within the fabric of black and white photographic paper. To ensure the highest quality possible, every silver gelatin print is handmade by Sergio Patel and the master printers at Black and White on White in Brooklyn, New York. The motto there is Beauty Over Scarcity, which reflects Charcoal Edition's mission to return to the core of photography's democratic and accessible nature. They're offering listeners of this podcast an exclusive 10% discount through the end of the year. So go to charcoaleditions.com and use the code a small voice at checkout. So yeah, I uh, almost brought you a normal episode this week, as those of you who follow me on Instagram might have noticed. I was going to bring you Aaron Schumann, and I had one of those moments this morning where I sat bolt upright in bed and had this kind of sudden dawning that I'd completely screwed up because this being the last episode of the year has to be the the year in review. I was going to do it for some reason at the beginning of next year on the first episode of 2023 and then realised no that isn't right. So Aaron's going to be first up next year and today I've spent all day putting together this review of the year. So pulled in the clips from all of my chats that I had with each individual photographer. I'm going to introduce them one at a time and then I'll be back for a bit more right at the end. So stick around. Don't forget that you can sign up as a member of this podcast and enjoy exclusive, special, extra content for £5 a month. And we've just launched a completely new members only thing whereby we're going to be checking in with a photographer each month and we're going to do a live Zoom session just for for members where uh, that photographer will present pictures from a forthcoming or current book project and there'll be questions and answers at the end. So that's a brand new thing. I'm going to be introducing more and more extra content for my members just to encourage those of you who are thinking of becoming members to actually go ahead and do that. So please, if you're thinking of becoming a member uh, in 2023, join up at pod.fan. Find this podcast page uh, right there on the homepage at pod.fan and please join up to get all these special extra goodies so here comes the review of 2022 have a fantastic festive season and all the best for 2023 look forward to bringing you some great chats as I did tease very recently I've got some exceptionally good stuff in the can including 
Gregory Crewson, including Eugene Richards, including, as I said, the aforementioned Aaron Schumann and uh, many others besides. So looking forward to bringing you those. Like I say, stick around till the end and there's more to come from me very briefly uh, after these clips from the best of 2022. Episode 169, Alison McCauley. I started moving from the age of, well, actually a tiny baby, actually. And then, uh, you know, the next time I moved, I was one. Next time I moved, I was seven. So it's been throughout my life, I've always moved. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, um, it, well, it's difficult in many ways. One is because you're constantly leaving people behind. And when you're a child, you know, when you leave as an adult, you can, especially nowadays, you can keep in touch with people. But as a child, you left everybody. And, and unless your parents were very kindly going to keep, help you keep in touch, which they didn't do, you, mm. you lose these people. So every time it's a huge loss. Um, yeah. So that is a, a, the kind of sad side of it. You know, and then, you know, the positive, obviously, is that it's super exciting to go somewhere new and to check it out. But, yeah, it's haunting because, you know, it's this whole feeling of, you know, not quite belonging because you're always kind of newish. Um, and, you know, I'm British. I, I have a British passport. It's the only nationality I have on paper. Yet, um, you know, I sort of sound British and people think, oh, you should know about all my t- our TV programs and this and that. And I don't, you know, I haven't grown up in the UK. I haven't spent mu- that much time there. So, you know, even in the country that is supposed to be mine, I don't really belong. And that, that's kind of one of the weirdest ones. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, f- everywhere, you never quite completely fit in. But then, you know, on a, on a good day, you can say that I fit in everywhere and I, you know, I feel comfortable everywhere. I can go somewhere new and very quickly it can feel like home. You know, I just go to a supermarket and get some groceries and I feel like I'm at home already. So, yeah, yeah that's a good day. On the bad day, it's this sort of restless feeling that, you know, I should go somewhere else because I'm not quite right here. I don't fit in here. And so, yeah, I'm always looking. I'm always thinking and yeah. where, where should I go? Episode 170, Robert Gumput. So you think that you'd turn into a kind of automaton in a way that you were just, you were shooting without any passion, without any sort of personal... I think of, that happens to all of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I and, think it and, happens. One of the things I've, I, I'm going to... Inter- I'm sorry, I tend to... No, no. Do you remember the day in the life books? Uh, no. No, okay. So you're probably not that old. So the Day in the Life books were started out here by Rick Smola. Mm. He had this idea that if I can, I can get money from corporations and I can hire 100 photographers and send them out to do whatever the fuck they want someplace. So it would be like the, the first one was the Day in the Life of Australia. Mm. And because there's no assignment involved, there's just, hey, you got a camera. I know your work. I like you. Here's here's a here's five hundred bucks in your expenses, and you know how often no limit on film. Go out and shoot whatever the hell you want at this place. And I thought, and and people will they'll do this amazing work. All the work came back looking exactly like it was shot for Time Magazine, Newsweek whoever they were shooting for. Mm-mm. They could not escape the way they saw. 
So, so you saw that in yourself, that, that tendency, as it were. You had identified that somehow and uh, yeah. didn't want to carry on down that road. No, I hated it. And but, the reasons for doing it no longer existed. I mean, the money did. but but So I needed, I just wasn't what I got in the business for. Mm. You know, I mean, at, at all. So I quit. And I um, didn't know what to do. All I knew is I had to relearn how to shoot. So I put a camera on my shoulder and I walked, I, I walked out the door and I just walked all around and with no idea what I was going to do. And one of the things, if you do that in San Francisco, everywhere you go, there's homes and money. And so... Even somebody as kind of slow to suss things out as I am. Eventually, you know, after about a year, thought, I know there's a story here. Episode 171, Mimi Plum. I think I grew up fast. I definitely have that sense that I grew up really fast. I mean, I stopped mm. taking drugs when I was 16. <laughs> No, so mm-hmm. it was like where I would where I was playing around with drugs and it was like I'd done that, I was past that. Um yeah, I wanted mm. to move on to something that that again had you know, that I just felt more strongly about. And I was yeah. always looking for meaning and my closest friends were also the same. One of my closest friends is now a well known musician in New York City. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was following that path of wanting to be a musician. She's a well known jazz musician. And oh, okay. you know, I, I decided I wanted to be a photographer, and right, so that's right. what I pursued. So when you went to Berkeley at 17, had, had you already discovered photography at that point? Is that what yeah. you went to yeah, pursue? Yeah, it was one of the first things that I really connected to while I was in school. Um, I wasn't academically oriented. It, it just didn't interest me. And I was uh, I took a number of creative writing classes while I was in high school, and I always thought I was like terrible at it. I think I, I don't think I'm a particularly good poet. Words are really difficult for me. I just sort of torture myself. When I picked up a camera, it was like, oh my God, I just felt like I, I could just play and mm-hmm. wander around and look at the world and photograph the things that I thought were really important. And it was just, it just, I just took to it like, you know, excuse the phrase, but fish, fish to water. It just yeah, felt yeah. really fun and comfortable. And I always, that, that element of photography being fun is never, is always something that, I think is really important to making work. And I mm-hmm. still kind of hold on to that, even though my work is fairly serious. Not all of it, but you know, there's there's that strong element that I, I want it to be a fun process in terms of mm. Episode 172, Peter Fraser. There is no hierarchical relationship between big things and small things. It doesn't matter how big something is. It's made up of the most unimaginably small components. And inside those components is space. And one of the preoccupations I've had all through my career is trying to understand not only what things are made of and how they they can exist and what does it mean that they exist, but also reflecting on the, if you like, the Big Bang. And the idea, because you in that film, you travel through galaxies, mm. solar systems, 
And one of the things that, one of the ideas that came out of that for me that's been so important is thinking about the Big Bang and an unimaginably dense body of matter that at a certain moment explodes in ways that quite defy my comprehension but lead to the planets, the, the different galaxies, the solar systems and Earth itself at that point simply being an uneven mass of rock and, and gas which then over eons coalesces into what we know, we know as Earth. And when I look around all through my life at what I see around me on Earth and I reflect on the fact that this was originally just an uneven rock surrounded by gas, then I'm absolutely awestruck by the almost incomprehensible beauty and strangeness of everything that is around us. And that goes to the very heart again of what I've spent 40 years already mm. trying to investigate, trying to communicate my excitement and my sense of the strangeness of the world around us, mm. given that notion of our history. Episode 173, Eva Vutsaki. I can identify, especially with uh, pr uh, photographers who describe the problems in our industry or the problems in education. It's like, or how do you survive as a photographer? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle and a perennial question. Hmm. But what about this uh, imposter syndrome thing? What's going on with that? Why do you, why do you feel that? Um, uh, you, you, I think you talked about it in terms of feeling like a misfit. Yeah, so I was, you know... I'm, I'm uh, like a farmer's daughter and I know how to grow my own food and I feel confident in the fields or in under trees. <laughs> but then when I go in a gallery and there's an opening, it's loud and alcohol and it's just this pretentiousness. I don't get it. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. It's just disgusting, seriously. And I, I, I force myself to go to a Paris photo. As a, for me, Paris photo is like the encyclopedia of photography. You go there and you just see where photography is heading. But it's overwhelming. It's just um, it's too much. I have to mm. wear headphones and just uh, uh, meet my friends, you know, like um, breathing breaks. But I, this is what I don't like in the photography world, the pretentiousness. Episode 174, Jim Southern. Basically, I somehow or other become attached to a site. And they can be very small, very large. It can be as small as a pond or as large as a... 50 miles of, of, of coastline and I, got, I become attached by making a picture and then sometimes I go back to these sites and I make another picture and once I've got a second picture I realized wait a minute there's a piece of there's a piece of work to be made here and so my my works are all an, exp an exploration of a relationship with, a, with, with, with each site and each one has a different arc a different journey uh, but the methodology is the same. I just go back and I, I, I keep making pictures. And, for instance, when the Red River was a, a site, one of the sites, the second second site I visited, I started working on after the docks were finished, the floating harbour in Bristol. And I finished taking pictures on that river in 1987. 
and the show at Plymouth Arts Centre with the curator Rosie Greenleys took place in November of that year, and I thought, that's all wrapped up. And then I moved from Cornwall to Devon to Exeter for a teaching job, and, and I never stopped going back to the Red River. I still go back now. Yeah. That's the, you know, I, I'm still making work along the Red River. I still go back once a year, I go for a walk. So mm -hmm. although pieces of work come to a resolution, I realized that with one or two exceptions, my relationship with the sites is continuous. I never, I never really stop. Episode 175, Patrick Brown. At the time, and now I'm, I'm much more comfortable with it, but to get the accolades for that image. Yeah. I, I, I thought there was more images that told, uh, told a story of hope. However, that, it's, it, I didn't, it's an image, it's not a bad photograph. It's, it's, a, it's a photograph of bad things. Yeah, of course. And it's the, the, that, that is the evidence of ethnic cleansing. That is, mm. That's the consequences of it. And that's what the world need, needed and still does need to see in some way, the actual consequences of such actions. Mm. Uh, and the, the judges thought that that was the most articulate image that portrayed that. Mm. This is such an interesting area because, like you say, it's not a bad photograph, it's a photograph of bad things, and that is, seems to be as good a kind of working definition of, of what photojournalism involves, unfortunately. But the weirdness of getting uh, an accolade for such uh, an image of such darkness is, I can imagine, you know, a very difficult thing. And maybe you have conversations with people like Adam and Ivor about this very thing but it, it's the kind of is it about the kind of the ethical tussle between uh you know taking a picture like that whether it's okay to do that whether it's somehow disrespectful or whether the kind of the end goal justifies the means which is that you're there to to show us you know the wider world what's happening and that's your job how how do you think about that? That's why I was there. It, that there's, I mean, if I was there for any other reason, then that I need to see a therapist. I was there to document these atrocities and the and what had happened, what is happening at that time to these people. Mm. Um, now, to to get back to your point about the, I think you've got to constantly ask yourself, you you. I'm always asking myself on these type of stories and these type of issues and asking myself, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I in the right position morally? Am I, you know, if you stop asking yourself those questions, I think you will fall off that into the precipice. Mm. You really need to be constantly reevaluating yourself. And the compass does move. And, and, and it, it's, not a, it's not a true north. And what I mean by that is because you are changing your, you're changing your, the way you, you're documenting something. And you always need to bring it back to that true north and keep on that track. Episode 176, Al Bazari. With photography, I answered my own questions on my own. But I guess that... Um, with the documentary film that I'm, I will do, I will ask them all the questions that I have. So I'm keeping them for that mm. for that moment. And the camera or the video camera, in a way, is a kind of um, protection for me. Right. 
you can sort of hide behind it a bit. There's yes, a, and a also find a way that becomes my work and have an emotional distance from, from it because, of course, the, the start is very emotional, but then it becomes a work and you have to be controlled and composed. In fact, also the aesthetic is not so rhetorical and emotional because some things are private and you keep them to yourself and some others are are the work in itself. So mm. to be able to also separate these things, mm. it's, uh, it's important. Well, it feels like that approach that you take, that very forensic kind of approach, is a way to protect yourself mm-hmm. in a way. You're exploring the story for yourself. Maybe you're exploring your own emotional, your emotions, but at the same time, you're kind of maintaining some kind of distance. Is, yeah. that, is that the thinking behind that approach? Yes, yes. That's uh, the reason. Episode 180, Pradip Malde. You say you're not a process junkie. I, I was kind of um, interested to hear that you've you've kind of you know gone digital to some extent, yeah. and um, I, I don't know why, but I get a kick out of upsetting the uh, analog purists via yeah. letting them know that I just spoke to Jen Southam um, yeah. on on the podcast. He was a very sort of I love you know, his work yeah, too. esteemed oh. uh, landscape photographer, and 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 Jen's like, yeah, I'm rocking the digital man. Well, yeah. you know, like he's using a little tiny you know Sony, and um, I don't know. I, I, I imagine that the, all the um, analog purists get all kind of um, wound up about it. I don't know if they really do. But um, also, you're doing that as well. You know, you're you're not you're not wedded to this particular thing as though it's sort of sacred or something. Um, it's very interesting for me to hear that you're yeah. expo- exploring. You know, other other ways to to make an image. There, yeah. I I'll I'll just you know. Thanks, by the way. I didn't say this earlier when we started, but this is such an honor to, ah, to be to be on know. the voice Don't as be such. Silly. And Don't be no, silly. I mean it. And uh, um, and I say that because here I am. If you're listening out there, you know the purists as such. Um, let it go. You know, <laughs> we have more important work to do. Um, the work that we do as photographers is about transforming. Um, attitudes uh, about giving access to a poetic experience Um, it is about somehow reaching beyond our day-to-day lives it is about aspiring to be better and that's all big stuff you know now if we uh, we can only do it by using processes well but we're going to start limiting ourselves if we say, I only use a process because it is somehow pure. That's, that's a distraction. It's a smokescreen. Mm. Um, we've got more important stuff to do. Episode 181, Lewis Bush. You're not kind of shy about calling people out if you feel like they've you know, transgressed, are you? Yeah, it depends a lot on the person. I mean, I teach, you know, and students come often very enthusiastic with an idea for a project that's full of ethical pitfalls. And, you know, of course, early in your career as you're developing, you're not necessarily aware of these kind of problems in the same way. I think it's when I see people who are far far enough along to know better, but actually sometimes you suspect they know, but they don't actually, they're not, they don't care. Mm -hmm. That's what really bothers me um, i guess yeah yeah. i mean there's been there's been a lot of examples over the last you know i don't know decade or so but um you know people just like deliberately 
miscaptioning stuff, for instance, you know, there's 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 zero excuse for that. There's no, there's a complete bang to rights, like you know. But then, you know, it, but yeah, again, the power thing, you know, like um, you know, Stephen McCurry got got called out, didn't he, for for um, you know, excessive uh, post production, and and I don't think anything ever really came of that. It seemed like no one really called him. I mean, it, it, they called him out, but it, like I don't remember him ever saying anything about it. I think he um, he made a kind of public statement where he said something along the lines of, "A, it wasn't me; it was someone in my studio." Like, sorry, but kind of, it's your studio. Take mm. some responsibility yeah, for it. Total bollocks. And B, that he uh, he was a storyteller, not a not a journalist, mm. um, which was interesting because I. F- after he said that, I quickly found a lot of places where he did describe himself as a journalist mm. and therefore wasn't kind of bound by the same rules. And I think that's a really interesting thing because obviously there's this kind of burgeoning like area of kind of whatever you want to call it, kind of conceptual documentary or kind of uh, I've heard terms like post-truth documentary, which I find like an amazing <laughs> concept where I think uh, some of the people working in that those kind of areas, not all of them at all, feel that they're not bound in a way also by the same standards of truth and you know I trained first as a historian and then I worked as a researcher and then I kind of retrained as a journalist and however kind of weird and conceptual my projects are I think you know that the accuracy and truthfulness of them is critical you know and if I ever found something that wasn't true in one of my projects you know a, it would be really galling because I go to a lot of lengths to try and make sure those things aren't there, but also I'd really want to do something about it. So I think, yeah, when you find people who, in a way, it seems to kind of slightly opportunistically mm. using the idea of kind of journalism or documentary because it's cool, but then actually don't really have an interest in, in sticking to the kind of the tenets, I mm. guess you could say, mm. of it, um, that's annoying to me. Yeah. Episode 182, Greg Williams. Because I'm, for the most part, just me in a cabinet, right? Mm. I am closer, much closer than someone whose work relies on a format, you know, on a large format, for instance, or someone whose work relies on a particular grade and crunch, or someone whose work relies on a certain light. I'm much closer to someone using their mobile phone than most other photographers at the level at which I'm working. Um, And for me, I think, you know, it's a weird one because obviously it is years and years of experience, but I find photography so easy. And, and, And the way I've got it down now, it is so simple. And, you know, like, there's a, so I do a pro course, which is quite expensive, and I do a thing called Skills Faster, which is which is substantially cheaper and in 65 minutes I will make someone who says I can't take a good picture if they concentrate for 65 minutes I will show them how to take good photos and they will take better photographs Um, my wife's a classic example she's she's always said she can't take a good picture and literally I've had this course on for like a year and a half and about two months ago she did it and she's now, you know, she's taking better photos. And, mm. and, and, it, and it's simply getting people to think about where light's coming from and how it falls and how that light changes depending, like I said earlier, where you put yourself and your subject in relation to the light. And to, for, to think about story. 
right. think about what's the narrative of this picture. Episode 184, Joe Coates. From working with young people in different areas, I think the North is you have a different way of being. And again, I don't know whether this is from like being in a rural area because that's where I grew up, but you're taught you have to be quite like humble. And so if you went into a room and you were really confident, it's like that tall poppy thing. You would be told not oh, to right. do that. And you would <laughs> someone would like take the piss out of you to bring you back down, oh, right. even in a jokey way. But then you go to London and you're told that you have to act the way that you've been told is not how you act. Oh, wow. That must be really confusing. And I think, yeah, you're like, um, so what do I do in this yeah. situation? How, how did you sort of work your way through that little dilemma then? I mean, there's something to be said for both of those attitudes, but um, they can't, they, they're mutually exclusive in a way. So, you know, you've got to go one way or the other. I mean, I think humility is hugely important, but then so is confidence. So, you know, you've got to try and steer that uh, that line down the middle. And I think it, it is trying to find your own way. And I think it took me a while, but it's like being true to yourself. And when I was like, it was first year, I think, I was lucky that I got a mentor in Steve McLeod who works at Metro um, and he was just like, it doesn't matter if you're not the loudest person in the room, just be, it's, it's important for you to be who you are. And that really like, it is important to be who you are. And so I would say that I'm not super confident, but I am quietly confident and I am very much like true to who I am and quite stubborn. Mm. And that's my way of doing it. But I think that that might not work for everyone. So you have to apply what is your personality and all these different things. So like, I'm never going to be that person at a private view that walks up to someone and is like, hi, this is me. This is what my work's about. Yeah. I would, I would vomit in my mouth. I just wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> like, but as well, it would come across like that, but someone else that might be who they are. And there's not actually nothing wrong with that, but that might be very natural for them. So then it wouldn't be a forced interaction. But I think that it's about being, true to who you are and finding your own way so that might be saying let's have a coffee instead of like oh would you like to talk about this or like having a more natural way of meeting someone or quietly and determinedly getting on with your work mm. in the way that you can episode 185 rich joseph Fakan. i was feeling great about the community at that point i was like, super excited about it every day going out and making images and just everything was resonating with me it was like it was like being in a Disney movie and all the birds are chirping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, but then at one point I did have this run in with this woman and, um, and, uh, I made a portrait of her and her daughter and then both of them separately and, you know, got their information and gave them mine and said, I would you know send them some outtakes of the work. And then all of a sudden, I think a few days later, there a post on a local Facebook page for, I think it's called Mama Friends. It's just for local women that are mothers. And um, it kind of started going viral. It basically described me to the T, what I was driving, what I was wearing, saying that I was like a predator on her and her children. And um, it was really bad. But I kind of ignored it because I was like, oh, whatever. But then I went back and checked it again. and it, Or my wife went back and checked it. And it was going viral like it. You know, for for a local community, it was going viral, and this is mm. small communities. And at that point, I was I raised concern because I said, you know, well, 
I'm pretty easy to identify here. Um, and I stand out. So I was just like, oh man, you know, this could be bad. I could be in a situation where people see me and confront me and want to turn to, you know, turn some type of physical violence. And I just wasn't, you know, I don't, wasn't ready to invite that into my life. Mm. So I actually went to the local state police station in that town because in the post it says she reported it to the police and, you know, told everyone in her community to look out for me. And so I actually went there. I brought my daughter there as like my like safeguard to kind of mm. like smooth the edges out a little bit. Cause I look a little bit gruff, you know, here and there. And like, <laughs> so she and I went and I just, I gave him my card. I gave him my, um, you know, sample of the work I do. I gave him like, you know, the emails that went back and forth between myself and the, the, the woman who I had photographed and like all the, screenshots of the posts and things just hey i just want to let you know this is who i am this is what i do if you have any Mm -hmm. problems like reach out to me and um so there was that scenario but overall i mean that was like you know very that was like the one thing that kind of it's a very weird reaction because obviously you know you she'd already agreed to to be Mm -hmm. photographed and you and so she it was almost like she'd done a complete uh, some kind of strange kind of mental (laughs) gymnastics in uh sort of misrepresenting who you were yeah, it was it was very bizarre, and and actually, I remember after that happening, I, I felt like like I mentioned earlier, you know, I did I felt like I was in a Disney movie, but then when that happened, I really felt deflated and really discouraged. Um, nothing like that had ever happened to me before, um, you know, as a photographer, and I felt like I had to do something, you know, to to get my confidence back. So. I immediately like went out to make images that later that afternoon, but I didn't photograph any people. Um, I was just photographing like relics and landscapes and things. And then as I was driving, I was like, all right, man, you got, you got to at least try to photograph one person. Cause you gotta, you gotta get past this. Cause I was mentally, I just wasn't there anymore. It wasn't where I needed to be. So, but I knew like the only way to get past it was to like, just you know, push through it with making, making images again and resonant and connecting with the people in the community. So I actually ended up turning down this road and ran into this other gentleman who was also in the book. And he, um, he's, he's a photograph of a man with this big white beard and he's got like a camouflage shirt on with little deer on it. Um, and I saw him at the end of this lonely road with his truck and I was like, but he looks so great to photograph. And I was like, Oh my gosh. All right, let's see this, you know? And he waved, which is, you know, which mm. is pretty common out in the country. People do wave, but he did, he waved and I was like, okay, that's my end. So I made the images of him and hung out and talked for a while. And, and that kind of brought me back to where I needed to be. Episode one, eight, six, Sam Jones. Confidence is like the, sun in London. I think it shows up when you don't expect it and it leaves when you most need it. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, confidence to me is, is, uh, it's not something that I can, at least back then I couldn't generate it. You know, um, I, it, it was almost like, a a feeling that, you know, I, I couldn't quite predict when I was going to feel it next. And when I did feel it, that's when I had my most productive and, and creative times, I think, because, um, you know, when I think when you're an artist and you're feeling good and everything's working and flowing, um, then the ideas come out and you, and you believe in the ideas. You could have the same idea when you're down on yourself and think it's a terrible idea. And someone else could have that same exact idea, but they're feeling great about themselves and the idea will become great. 
And it's a very nebulous thing. But what I discovered was that I could have all my un, my moments of no confidence at home by myself. Like the hardest part for me about my career, the entire career was when I had to sit in a room and come up with the idea that I was going to try to pitch or that I was going to try to produce or pay for or talk someone into and having that idea go through all of the self-critic and filters and whatever, you know, whatever negative voice I had to get it through. But I discovered that I could, that I could do that process sort of on my own and land on some ideas and make a list and draw a storyboard or go location scouting or something. And I would build my own little confidence by being prepared. Mm. So then by the time I I finished that, I, the idea and I landed on something, then it was that thing where it's like, okay, I see the picture in my head. Now I just have to go out and make it. And I think I was, I would become fixated on that and that would distract me from maybe feeling intimidated or like I didn't belong in the room. Episode 187, Brian Schutmatt. I think in the world of, you know, a post-internet world, uh, the, the digital revolution of recent decades, um, this new space of iPhones and NFTs, and mm. uh, I mean, just looking down at my iPhone right now, um, that's just such an undignified way to look at photographs you put a lot of time and effort into. Yeah. Um, so the pictures on my website of installation shots or pictures of books is just to remind people that what you're looking at right now on screen is a very compromised version of what these pictures ought to be and I know that exhibitions are only up for a few months and I know that books are only printed in an edition of, of you know 1500 mm. or whatever but um, it's basically telling the viewer if you can I would like this website to be a stepping stone for you to actually uh, experience the book or the exhibition rather it's just sort of attempting to remind people that prints and physical tactile things matter in this digital age. Um, so I don't want to see that lost. Episode 188, Kavi Pujara. I had sort of given up on the screenwriting uh, and, uh, and I knew I wanted to make photography, but I, I, I went, I went, actually I went back to drawing for a while um, and practiced that and, and sort of photography and I want, and I was doing photography as well, but the spark really came from, that moment of coming back, relocating back to Leicester. And within two weeks of me moving back, there was the EU referendum results. Um, both of those moments, the personal and the political, were in the space of a few weeks. And yeah. I wanted to use photography to reconnect with the community I'd been growing up in. I told you the story about my Laura, the lollipop lady. I was kind of using that as a way to just knock on doors and just reconnect with people really but it was impossible to ignore the kind of the shift from that point it was almost night and day it felt to me I really kind of took it to heart and found it quite depressing um that, that societal turn towards anti-immigrant populism mm. you know and I spend my I I was still I still work in London a couple of days a week in the newsroom um so I worked for the, the news and, um, you know, and, and I'd seen all of that Brexit um, campaigning that was going on, um, you know, in the lead up to the vote and the, and the results. And, and I, I don't think a lot of people saw it coming, 
But um, mm. you know, there was there was definitely a moment. You know, people were being allowed to voice their prejudices and their, and I could I could see that those echoes of my childhood in the seventies being reflected back at me in this moment, and that I wanted to react to mm. in the project. Episode one eight nine, Ben Brody. I believe the first time I ever heard that term, the feedback loop described in this way, was from uh, Tim Hetherington in an interview, the late Tim Hetherington. Mm. Um, And it was describing a phenomenon that I had observed many times, which is basically that, you know, the military or the uh, the media photographs war. Um, those representations of war are then translated into the sort of Hollywood cinematic universe and also uh, video games. Um, Soldiers look at those representations and they start acting in that way and like reacting to your camera in that way. And then you photograph that, which is then like reappropriated by Hollywood video (laughs) games. And, you know, at at this point, it's become this, like, intense fetishization of the sort of special operations, you know, the, uh, the more, like, secret and specialized and highly trained and supposedly invincible... Uh, the more cachet it has. Whereas like Mm. that representation and that like sort of ideation of military valor is relatively recent. Um, You know, looking at uh, World War II, like that was not sort of uh, how heroism was defined uh, visually uh, or Mm. Vietnam for that, for that example, uh, for that. um, Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I uh, it was a very conscious decision on my part to make a photo book. I felt like there was a space in culture to make a photo book that was about uh, that was narrated by a totally ordinary soldier uh, mm-hmm. who was not some like scary CAG operator or you know CIA spook, um, and also by uh, a pretty ordinary photographer. Um, you know, not like a famous photographer with a storied history, um, mm. who's really invested in sort of a cult of personal celebrity. Um, you know, I, when I made attention service member and now 300 meters, which is almost like an epilogue to a uh, service member, um, I had the luxury of having like probably 75 photo books already about the global war on terror that had come out before me. So I was able to like analyze those books and assess, you know, so what hasn't been done before? Because a lot Mm -hmm. had been done. There are a lot of those books that are, you know, absolutely brilliant and really influential and, you know, some that are really problematic that, you know, I was responding to, you know, what I saw as like a really flawed or, or outright mm. false uh, narrative about the war. Episode 191, Anastasia Samoylova. You do work hard. Where do you get that work ethic from? Is it, Do you know, or is just something that you is innate and you experience it, but you don't really know what the origins of it are? Mm. Okay. Can get philosophical with that one. Uh, well, please do. All right. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I've always had it. I think the key impulse here 
is this uh, sense of gratitude for being able to do that, what I've always known I wanted to do and feeling zero entitlement to this. It's a, an immense privilege to be in this line of work. And I think of it in, sad to say now, but there were some ideals in this kind of socialist way where I am a culture worker. Hmm. Uh, Rodchenko and Varvara Stepanova used to talk about it, that I'm just a cultural worker. And there's nothing else I would rather do. Um, the academic job teaching photography was close enough, but it was just so time consuming and I was giving it so much of my energy that it left me with no time. Add to that parenting young child who is now entering teenage years. So that helps immensely. It's funny when people ask, where have you been? I've not heard of you before. I'm like, well, I raised a kid, you know, and also it takes, takes a minute uh, to get to gain this kind of flexible, not flexible, but the freedom, I guess, to move around, mm-hmm. relative freedom to move around because you're never not parent. Uh, but it's a different trajectory for women. And that's why I, I believe part of the reason why there are so few women in this genre of observational street road trip photography, right? Location photography. So unless you belong to some agency that really has your back, if you're this kind of independent uh, artist, it, it's a lot harder. It, there's a lot of logistics and there's a lot of knocking on doors. And I also don't come from... Um, how do I put it politely? Uh, privilege. Mm. I don't come from privilege at all. You know, this is everything I have has been earned. Uh, I did not go to Ivy League school. That was out of question for me. I arrived with very little resources and I had to get into my Midwestern school that provided me with free education. There was, there was no way around it. You know, I didn't go to Yale and I didn't have the curators from New York City come to my school and uh, look at my work, right? I had to knock on doors and write emails and try to get meetings with people and show the work uh, so we can collaborate. And the idea Mm -hmm. here is to just have this sustainable career where there's enough traction where things come to me and they do now, but it took years. Nothing was immediate for me. It might appear so from a distance, but it's been decades of work. Episode 192, Stephen Shaw. I made another note here. Um, it was about uh, what you refer to as cultivating attention, about um, seeing and listening. And it made me think about meditation. I was wondering if that's something you've explored. I think it's similar to meditation, but what, it, what I'm talking about is being attentive in the midst of life. Mm. Um, and main, maintaining attention. Uh, I, mean, I, I give an extreme example in the writing. When your mother calls, you, the phone rings and you pick it up and it's your mother's voice, do you lose yourself? Mm. Or do you, can you maintain your attention? But I'm glad you picked up on it because that's one I, I think is one of the most important things I talk about in the book. It's what in some ways is central for me. Uh, why I say it's why I photograph very mundane things 
uh, something spectacular. Uh, I, I have this well-known picture of a billboard with uh, a mountain on it and an incredible sky behind it. The, the, the real sky is more interesting and more dramatic than the sky in the billboard. And I think that, okay, I love the picture. I understand why people like it. But in a way, it was like a no-brainer. Like anyone seeing it, will, I would imagine, will think this is amazing. Mm, right. But to, to look at something completely ordinary, what you see day to day in your life, and pay attention to it, that's, that's something different. And that's what interests me. And, I, and just from years of trying it and doing it, I feel like it provides a certain kind of food for people, mm. that, it, that it's nourishing. Episode 193, Paddy Summerfield. Now in this day and age, you can put your work on Instagram, on, mm. onto the you know, internet, and people can see it. And we talked earlier about how you, know, you didn't make books for many years because mm. you didn't really mm. have the money to do that because it mm. costs money. Mm. So I'm wondering if you think, what you think you know, that might be a real benefit that mm. images can be shown you know, on a phone screen or on a computer screen now? I think in truth, it's mentality, isn't it? The kind of person you are. That mm. you need to be an all-rounder, don't you, to um, take the pictures, to order them, to find a publisher, to get it out there. You see, it is in fact more satisfying to take pictures than anything else. It takes your mind away from reality. You're hyper-focused when you take a picture. And it's like climbers on the end of a rope, scaling dangerous slopes, that you've got to concentrate exactly on what you're doing. One slip and you're coming down. So... It's like that. It takes your mind away from itself mm. because you're thinking about where you're putting your foot. And when you take pictures, you forget yourself. It's like so you're so intensely looking at something, you forget. And um, it's like playing the fruit machine. You know, you're willing the fruit to come up in a line. So, and you only want money to come out to put back in. Mm. You see, you completely um, lose yourself. So you, it's almost like a meditative thing for you, is it? Well, not, no, it's... Or de- almost an escapism. It's escape. It's escape from me. It's kind of, you are... Um, no, it's an escape... Because what? Because you find um, you find life, or you find being in your own head is 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 a uncomfortable place. Mm, yeah. Why? Well, because your experiences in life, because you carry that forever. Anyway, see, all my books end in you know something positive. Mm. See, in in a way, you know, you should always surround yourself with enthusiastic, happy people, you know. 
Um, you don't want negative people to bring your world down and you down. Um, but it's life is complicated. Mm. I mean, to be honest, I think about photography all the time, really. And if you don't give yourself time to think about photography, you really won't develop. You want to push things to the edge. And there you have it, folks. That was a Small Voice podcast review of 2022. I hope that some of those clips reminded you of the chats that you enjoyed over the course of the year. And as I say, there'll be many more to come for 2023. So if you do want to sign up as a member of this podcast, go to pod.fan and do that. Perhaps do it as a little Christmas present to yourself. Before I go, uh, just to say once again, Happy New Year and have a great Christmas. We did lose a bunch of photographers, as always, uh, this year, and I can't possibly name all of them, but just to kind of have a quick rundown of the ones that come to mind, uh, Patrick Demachalia, the famous fashion photographer, uh, Letizia Battaglia, the legendary Sicilian photojournalist who spent much of her career documenting the Mafia, Eamon McCabe, the legendary Guardian picture editor and uh, sports photographer, uh, and a, a true and total legend, William Klein, um, who, you know, very much wish I'd had the confidence to uh, approach for an interview at some point. That would have been amazing. But 96 years old, he made it to, and that was a hell of an inning. So you can't whack that. And William Klein, obviously, yeah, I think you all probably have a sense of the, his significance. Uh, as uh, as one of the greats. And last but by no means least, the great Tim Page died. And uh, I'm going to leave you with a little clip from the chat that I had with Tim on episode 138. I mean, the, mm. the dream jobs, the Life magazines, the, the Observer, the Sunday Times, the, the stuff of, 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 of legend, if you wish, no longer there. So who do you shoot for? Some blog site that doesn't. That's not going to. That's not going to put new tires on the on on the Land Rover. It's not a business which has the same romantic cut that it did because there's nobody sending you some interesting place, much less running mm. more than a three-page spread. Sandwiched in between royal corgis and a cooking, cooking in a train in Africa, or whatever. I mean, it's it's predictable stuff. The edge is gone. I mean, I'm 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 sounding like an old fart, but where do you publish incredible images to make a difference into public opinion or otherwise? I mean, I just don't know where you put them anymore. Yeah, and I think um, what I've come to sort of realise is that for a young generation of, of wannabe photographers, that, that stuff that you were just talking about, f- for my generation and older, you know, we were familiar with those those little legendary um, publications and those Outlet. various options 
outlets is the word I'm looking yeah. for. But the younger generation, for them, it, it's just the stuff of, like you say, history, of legend. It's so irrelevant to them because it's not something that's even ever really been part of their living memory. So in a weird way, we worry about that stuff more than, than they do because it's just not a thing other than, oh, this is what the old duffers talk about. Do you know what I mean? But the problem is where if you do go out and bust your ass and, and come back with an incredible set of images, even footage, whatever it is, sound, I don't care, where are you going to run it? Where is it going to be seen? Where can you make that difference? And I suppose I mean, it's a bit of a lament because if you look back at what we did in the 60s and the 70s, those images actually changed people's public opinion not just in one country, but they changed it you know, in the States, in Europe, in Japan. It was a universal thing that was, I mean, especially Vietnam, it was changed by the imagery and people's attitude and the, you know, the body count and everything else. It was every day there was another very strong picture on your front page. I mean, I don't think there's ever been that intensity of good imagery on a constant, I mean, for 10 years. I mean, I'm not just talking because it's Pulitzers and it's all the rest of the prizes. The stuff is, you can still remember it. You ask even one of the kids we just you just mentioned, and they can probably pick five Vietnam pictures for you. They know the execution. They know Nikot's burning picture. They know the burning monk, but it, it, it's, it's a, a time thing, but today, okay, if you get similar great images from Syria, where are you going to put them? <laughs> 